Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Hard Time with the Truth, the lead single from the forthcoming album Solid Gold Sounds by singer-songwriter and our guest on today's episode of Songcraft, Kendall Marvel. Produced by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys, it's the second full-length album by the gritty southern troubadour who built his career as a behind-the-scenes songwriter for Gary Allen, Chris Stapleton, Jake Owen, Leanne Womack, Blake Shelton, George Strait, and many others. Kendall will join us in a moment to discuss his transformation from artist to writer and back again. Part one. So, Paul, did you have a good Labor Day? I had a fantastic Labor Day, and it was punctuated by a songcraft first over here because we're uh, we're doing this at night. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever done songcraft when the sun is down. No, and we've definitely never had the ice cream truck come by. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did uh, hit up the ice cream truck a while ago. So uh, it was a happy Labor Day already. I live it, in one of those neighborhoods where the mysterious ice cream truck comes at night. Yeah, ours does too, and I, I find that super <laughs> weird. Like, yeah. what kids are still up? Yeah, I think they might have something on there other than ice cream, but we were yeah. we were only getting the ice cream this evening. Yeah, totally. Uh, um, I had a, a, a bomb pop, the original bomb pop, which is the only way to go. You, you saw that I had some sort of Oreo ice cream monstrosity that yeah, it was incredible. is now largely on my shirt. Um, <laughs> but uh, so my wife is out of town, which, right. is, which is why we are doing this uh, at night. And um, running out to the ice cream truck like a <laughs> running couple of like idiots. children. Yeah. Um, and when my wife goes out of town, I, I usually get into some sort of cleaning frenzy. As you look around, you can see that the primary room of Songcraft World headquarters is is looking quite organized. Typical cliche: wife leaves, dude cleans. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I was cleaning, and and I cleaned out uh, the closet in here on yeah. Saturday, and so I was listening to NPR. While I was doing this, because I'm cool. God, you're and the biggest nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so I was listening to this show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which I don't even like. Uh, but I'm kind of such a slave to NPR that I was listening to it anyway. And they have this this little like game on that show where they say three news stories from the week. Huh. And two of them are completely false. Okay. And and one of them is real. Okay. And and the, the contestant has to guess which one is the actual real news story. And they all sound kind of outrageous, and, but one of them is actually something that happened usually like that week. I feel like I see where you're headed with this. Yeah, so I thought this is why it's not good to leave me alone because I get ideas. Um, I thought, what if we did a Songcraft edition? Huh. And so I have come up with three news stories from this week. Okay. All related to former Songcraft guests. Uh, two of these are completely fabricated. Fake news, as it Fake were. Fake news. Yeah. One is absolutely real. Okay. So I'm going to read you these three little news synopses, uh, and then you can tell me which one is the real Songcraft news. Okay. Not right. to be confused with real Songcraft nudes, which is <laughs> not something I think we want. To. Unless you're a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a new $75 a month tier. Uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read you uh, three news stories, and you tell me which one is, is uh, the real okay. one. Okay. All, right, All right, so here we go. First one. Recent Songcraft guest and political activist Steve Earle was recently arrested at the Texas-Mexico border for his participation in a protest against U.S. immigration policy. In the process of being detained, a U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agent accidentally broke the neck off of Steve's 1968 Gibson J-50 acoustic guitar. Well, I hope that's not true. And a judge ruled this week that the government owes Steve Earle $6,500 in damages. So that's, that's your first okay, story. That sounds likely. All right, here's your second one. While attempting to walk across the United States on foot, former Songcraft guest Mike Posner was sidelined for three weeks after being bitten by a rattlesnake at mile <laughs> 1,787. After several days in the hospital and an additional period of recuperation, he was able to resume his trek just this week. Wow. Uh, okay. And your final one. Former Songcraft guest Loretta Lynn was alarmed this week to discover a 38 caliber revolver in the bottom of her purse that TSA agents at the Nashville International <laughs> Airport failed to locate as she passed through security. Oh. She was awaiting her flight at the gate when the discovery was made, and after notifying airport personnel, she was interviewed for two hours before being released without charges. First of all, we didn't get two hours with Loretta. Like, that's not fair. <laughs> so uh, Steve Earle at the border with a guitar, um, Mike Posner uh, somewhere in America with a rattlesnake, or Loretta Lynn in the Nashville International Airport with a thirty-eight revolver. One of these is 100% true. The others are completely false. Well, I was in Nashville this past week, so I feel like I would have heard this Loretta story mm -hmm. had I been there. Um, man. The Mike Posner thing is just bizarre enough to be true, but I'm I, I think I'm gonna say Steve Earle just because of the specificity of the damages that you right. presented there. So, um, it was Mike Posner, my <laughs> former Songcraft guest. Mike Posner literally has oh been my. engaged in a walk across America, <laughs> and he was bitten by a rattlesnake. He had to be life flighted to the hospital. He was in ICU for three days Jeez. and then he was in the hospital for another five days and they told him he couldn't resume for, for three weeks. And, uh, he is now back on the road. He's been posting on, uh, Instagram little videos of like, he's singing songs along the way and Jeez. you know, doing stuff. So yeah, the guy, I mean, uh, almost got killed by a rattlesnake. Mike's a character. He you is know, a so, character. And, and so in a way it doesn't surprise me and it doesn't surprise me that, that he wasn't prepared for a rattlesnake. Like the, the the fact that he was surprised and and sort of stumbled upon a rattlesnake uh, doesn't surprise me because he didn't really strike me as like a bear grills type. Yeah, I mean, I can see how a rattlesnake might might sneak up on him. Although I gotta say, I'm terrified of snakes. So oh, dude! I don't want too. to uh, cast any judgment on Mike Posner no. for fear that I will wake up with a snake in my bed as punishment. Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I bring all that up to say, you know, there's a lot of uh, things in this world that are not true. Right. Uh, but some things are true. Mike Posner got bitten by a rattlesnake. That is true. <laughs> Another thing that is true is that if you want to seriously pitch your songs for professional consideration, then you need to have a good demo. Did you guys hear that? That was pro level. That was a pro level segue into presenting the services 
of the fine folks at Pearl Snap Studios to you, listeners. Pearl Snap Studios, our one and only sponsor here on Songcraft. We uh, have aligned with Pearl Snap Studios because we believe in the work they do. Yep. Um, they uh, make demos, whether you are a country songwriter, a pop songwriter, a rock writer, whatever you happen to be, these guys are flexible. They're based in Nashville. Um, so if you live in Nashville, you can go and, and go to the studio yourself. Yep. Or if you don't, you can send an MP3 of your tape. It can just be you and a piano, you and a guitar, probably even just you acapella singing yeah. the melody of your song. And Justin and uh, his staff over there at Pearl Snap will turn that into a fantastic demo recording. I mean, if you happen to be in the ICU recovering from a rattlesnake bite <laughs> and you have your laptop, then yeah. you can send that MP3 yeah. to Pearl Snap Studios Absolutely. and they'll take care of you. So pearlsnapstudios.com. Uh, go to the website and let them know that Songcraft sent you. Yeah, and they'll give you the Songcraft deal. And that's not fake news, folks. So another actual news item from this week before we jump into the Kindle Marvel interview is that Shane McAnally, recent guest on Songcraft, received his seventh nomination for CMA Song of the Year this Jeez. past week. No one on the face of the earth has ever received more nominations for CMA Song of the Year. There are two other people who also have received seven nominations, um, and that is Alan Jackson yep. and Bob McDill. Wow. Bob McDill has also been a, a Songcraft guest. I will also point out that the song uh, that Shane was nominated for this year is Rainbow by Casey Musgraves. Great song. Which was written by Shane and Natalie Hemby, another uh, former Jeez. Songcraft guest. Are we going to get like a Lifetime Achievement Award or something? Exactly. We should at least get a certificate. I mean, wow. come on. So, you know, we've had Natalie Hemby. We've had Shane McAnally. Um, we've had Bob McDill. Yeah, I mean, if so you're listening only, to CMA, come on. Yeah, the only two people in this lineup uh, that we've just mentioned that we haven't had are Casey Musgraves and, and Alan, Alan Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. So I would like to take this opportunity to personally invite Casey Musgraves and Alan Jackson yep. to appear together on a very special Odd Couple episode of Songcraft. <laughs> if you're listening together, <laughs> you know, just talk about it and uh, give us a call. <laughs> Part two. The son of a coal miner, Kendall Marvel was raised in southern Illinois, where his father encouraged his love of country music and took him to play in the local honky-tonks starting at the age of 10. He moved to Nashville as a young adult to pursue a career as a country artist, but ended up taking a nearly two-decade detour as a successful songwriter for other artists. Kendall's breakthrough came with Gary Allen's top five country hit, Right Where I Need to Be. He went on to write additional hit singles such as Tougher Than Nails by Joe Diffie, Starting With Me and Don't Think I Can't Love You for Jake Owen, Twang for George Strait, That Lonesome Song with Jamie Johnson, and Either Way, which was recorded by both Leanne Womack and Kendall's co-writer Chris Stapleton. Other artists who've recorded Kendall's songs include Tracy Lawrence, Trace Adkins, Blake Shelton, Josh Turner, Randy Hauser, Darius Rucker, Cody Johnson, Jim Lauderdale, Aaron Watson, Hank Williams Jr., and Brothers Osborne. As an artist, Marvel has recorded two albums, Lowdown and Lonesome, and the forthcoming Solid Gold Sounds, which was produced and mostly co-written with Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Kendall currently tours with Chris Stapleton and Brothers Osborne, introducing his unique take on Southern rock-influenced country to new audiences who've known his songs but are just getting to know his voice. Kendall, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. So I understand that you grew up in Illinois. Um, tell us a bit about your background and what kind of musical influences were shaping you at a young age. 
All right. When people think Illinois, I know they, their mind automatically goes to Chicago. But I grew up on the very southern tip of Illinois, almost Kentucky, down in the southern part of the state. And uh, it's very rural. Uh, back when I was growing up, you know, there was a lot of coal mines, a lot of farming, uh, some boat factories, that kind of that kind of stuff. So it was a very, very country people. And uh, as far as music, you know, in the in the 80s when I was in high school, late 80s, uh, man, it was, you know, Hank Williams Jr. was the king, you know, for for that area and for that whole time of for all of us. Randy Travis, you know, was a big influence, that music, uh, Dwight Yoakam, uh, and of course all the 70s stuff, you know, I, my dad was a big music buff, so we had vinyl spinning all the time, you know, it was Waylon Willie, and then we'd go on the rock side, he had Alice Cooper Records and Commander Cody, and just, just a lot of interest. I was exposed to a lot of interesting music. And how did you first get into making music of your own? Uh, my dad got me to play him when I was about five. He put a guitar in my hands and showed me a few chords, and, and it just kind of took off. You know, I enjoyed it because he would bring his buddies over. that would be at the bar all night, come home, get me up out of bed, and make my mom mad, and make me come in there and, and play country songs for him. And, and I just kind of got the bug, you know, from, from that, just from having a small audience. <laughs> yeah. When I was about 10, he would, you know, he'd start taking me out to the bars and honky-tonks, and I'd play music and for tips, and he would uh, get free beer. So it was a win-win. <laughs> You know, it's always interesting to me to talk with writers who got their start playing cover songs for a live audience. And what kind of lessons did you pick up from that experience, you know, in terms of how crowds respond to certain types of songs that informed your instincts when you became a songwriter later on? Well, obviously, I mean, just when you play night in, night out, you know, in these places, you see what kind of stuff people gravitate to, you know, especially in the country music genre. You know, uh, it's a very rural well, it's not necessarily rural, but uh, you know that's kind of what it's aimed at. A lot of a lot of country towns, sure. places like that, and you kind of see what touches those people. And you mm. start writing songs of your own. You're like, you know, they like story stuff, something that says something, or they did at that time. Now it's changed a lot. Right. Country music nowadays, you know, the with the on radio in any way. Sure. It went all to hell as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, <laughs> back then there was some really good stuff, you know, and it was just well written, well crafted, great story songs. Uh, uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of cheating, a lot of fighting, that kind of stuff. I was like, well, hell, that's fun stuff to write about there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, um, you, you talked about being influenced by Randy Travis, Dwight Yoakam, Hank Jr., and, and some of that kind of stuff as a kid. Um, once you were a young adult and you know really playing uh, those club gigs, what was some of the contemporary music from that time that you noticed was resonating with those audiences that you were playing for? So there was a lot of stuff coming on, a lot of 90s music, you know, Alan Jackson, uh, Brooks and Dunn, Travis Tritt, that kind of stuff, you know. Back then, that was when the radio was playing really cool, incredible artists. I mean, there was some shit like there is in any any decade you go to. <laughs> but, uh, that, but but Hank Jr., I mean, that was that's the kind of stuff that still resonates today, and that's right. what, you know, we all... Uh, what I want to strive to do to yeah. create is songs, you know, uh, 30 years later that, you know, when you play them 40 years later, you know, when you play Whiskey Bent and Hellbound today, they still raise a cup up and know the words to that song. Yeah. I don't think you're going to find many songs that's on today's country radio in 40 years that anybody's going to raise a cup up to. Mm. Well, I think it's so cool when a songwriter has been influenced by a particular artist and then that artist ends up cutting one of their songs. And that happened for you when Hank Williams Jr. recorded your song God-Fearing Man on his 2016 album, It's About Time. Day in, day out, son of the sun down, I am 
Talk about that experience of having one of your heroes record something of yours. Uh, there's nothing like it. I mean, you know, even coming from the artist standpoint of me making my own records, there's not the, the fulfillment that you get when somebody like that takes one of your songs and records it. You know, when Hank done my song, when George Strait, you know, guys that when I was a kid I looked up to. I mean, there's there's not a feeling like that. It's pretty phenomenal. So did you get a chance to meet Hank Jr. and, and go in the studio when they were cutting that? I didn't go in the studio when they cut it, but I had met Hank on a couple occasions. He's a he's an interesting dude for sure. <laughs> he is all Hank Jr. all the time, which is cool. <laughs> now, okay, so tell us how you went from playing in honky tonk cover bands to writing your own songs, and then eventually deciding, hey, I'm happy enough with the songs I'm writing that I'm gonna bet all the chips and head for Nashville. Well, I mean, I wanted to be a singer. You know, I mean, uh, an artist. That was what I always wanted to be when I was younger. Uh, I really started writing songs out of necessity, you know. I had some people interested in me as an artist and had a little development deal at RCA for a little bit. Uh, it was like, you know, nobody's going to give me their top shelf material because, you know, they wanted to, somebody to go make some money off of. And, I, you know, it kind of pissed me off at the time, you know. I was like, well, yeah. you know, I'd try to get a song. And they're like, well, no, we're not going to give that to you. Mm. Now, now, now that I've become a professional songwriter, I look back and was like, I totally understand that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I lived two and a half, three hours from Nashville, so I would travel back and forth and, and meet songwriters and things and try to get open mic nights and write shitty songs, learning the craft, you know. And when I finally, I was 28 years old when I moved to Nashville, and, uh, the day that I moved to Nashville, I wrote my first hit song, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is uh, way easier than what I thought it was going to be. I just happened to be at the right room at the right time, you know, right with the right guy, and both of us had our first hit off of that. And that song was Gary Allen's Right Where I Need to Be, which you wrote with Casey Bethard and which became a top five country hit in 2000. This is right where I need to be. He was just getting ready to explode. He's a great songwriter. He's been BMI songwriter of the year three or four times, you know, after that. But at that time, he hadn't had any hits. And, uh, he'd had, you know, he's right on the verge of just breaking. And we just got together, and I had the title. I, I don't remember a lot about it, actually. I mean, I remember I had the title wrote down in a little notebook I carried. And uh, just started playing the little the, the chords to it. Yeah. He's like, what is that? I was like, I don't know what that is. And uh, we just come up with it and wrote it that day. You know, didn't didn't think much about it really. Went in and demoed it. You know, a couple weeks later, and I, we really wanted Mark Chestnut to cut it, cut it for some reason. I mean, that was who we had in our head. You know, that we should give it to. And he passed on it. But they said, well, Mark's not going to do it, but Gary Allen really likes it. And the demo. You know, we went in and demoed that song. That's songwriter take a song in with the band and, and track it up and you know try to make it as cool as possible right and it really felt like werewolves of london (laughs) feel to it didn't have that big soaring guitar kickoff that gary put on the record so mark wright produced that album and that lick actually when a producer puts something like that on a record and it makes it just totally stand out further than you ever dreamed it would and you're like all right we got one this time you know so 
I thank Gary and Mark Wright for for making it way cooler a way cooler song than what it probably was when we gave it to them. Nice. It changed changed things drastically for me. You know, obviously went from uh, poverty line to to making a pretty comfortable living. It was like, holy crap, this is this is amazing. Then I kind of shifted gears from trying to be an artist to uh, trying to learn to write songs, yeah. write with people better than me all the time, and uh, and that started rolling and. It worked out great. I got to stay home and watch my kids grow up and do something that I love. And then my kids got grown and country music got shitty. <laughs> I said, I'm going to start making records. I'm writing thing. I mean, it's, you know, for 20 years, that's that's what I've done for a living. And it's uh, it's not a job, you know. Right. Right. You know, if you have if you love what you do and it's not work, I don't think. Well, I want to ask you about Tougher Than Nails, which was a top 20 hit for Joe Diffie in 2004. Um, after your initial success with Gary Allen, Tracy Lawrence recorded Daddy Was a Strong Man as an album cut. But until Joe Diffie released this single, um, there was really like a four-year gap between charting hits. And it, it's easy to look back now and, and see that, you know, everything worked out just fine. But uh, at the time, were you getting nervous and maybe kind of thinking like, man, I thought this was uh, going to be easier after, <laughs> you know, having the first song I wrote the first day in Nashville become a hit? Yeah, I mean, that kind of crosses your mind when that happens. But, you know, it was just at the same time, I was writing songs every day. I was learning. You know, they was uh, after that having that hit right off the bat, then, then I was getting with some really good writers and, and learning from them. And uh, just I had a publishing deal all that time, so I had a steady paycheck. You know, uh, somebody paying me to write songs for their company. So it took the pressure off uh, of them a few years in between. You know, and I just consistently got better. That was probably the, the biggest gap been four years three or four years between hits was like i probably learned more in those three or four years than any other three or four years in my career so that was just a, a learning a learning process for me and uh, luckily i had some good publishers that stuck with me and kept hearing something in my songs that the uh, they still paid me to hang around and learn which was pretty cool for sure a lot of times they try to set you up with the bigger writers you know which was great i I've had some success with some writers who are super successful, but most of the time, I you know I, I tend to have my my hits and my luck with people who are kind of the same level as me who hadn't really broke through uh, to that next level yet. And uh, so I learned it's like man, I'll try anything twice, you know, <laughs> you know, get in the room and try. You never know who you're going to write something really good with. Now these days I don't do that as much just because I don't write near as much as I used to. But uh, yeah, man, I was you know. When you're coming up through the ranks, you never know who's going to be the next, who's going to throw that magic idea out at you. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, you shouldn't turn people down, you know? Hmm. Wow. That is some great advice. Um, you know, you wrote five songs on Jake Owen's Starting With Me album, including two singles, Yeehaw with Casey Beathard and Jake, and then the title track, a top five hit you wrote with Jake and Jimmy Ritchie. If I had a dime for half the things I did. It didn't make no sense at all I'd be living a little higher on the hog If only I'd have known That later on down the road I'd look back and not like what I see I'd have changed a lot of things Starting with me now, when you're writing a song with an artist, you know that's the most likely person who will record it, uh, which is probably why you're, you're writing with them in the first place. But talk about the difference for you between getting together to work on a song where you don't necessarily know where to land 
versus working with someone where you know they'll hopefully be the voice or the vehicle for that song? When you're writing with an artist, uh, most of the time, you know, you go and sit down in the room and, and you, for our first thing I ask them is, what are you, what are you looking for? You know, what don't you have? You know, because you, they're writing songs every day and they're going to record, you know, 10 or 12 songs and they might have a hundred songs to pick from, you know, they've been, they've written. So it's like, what, you know, you've, you, they've picked out six songs and we need four more, you know, here, well, here's what we're missing. So that, you know, when you're writing with an artist, that's what I try to do. Uh, and I don't do that near as much anymore. I mean, I write with Brothers Osborne and Chris Stapleton, and that's about it that I write with on a regular basis. And, uh, and when they write with a songwriter, you know, just a regular writer, you just go in there and try to write the best possible song, you know, that you can write, whatever you're feeling that day, whatever they're feeling that day. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's different. You know, you're not really aiming with a songwriter most of the time. You're just trying to write something cool. And when you're writing with an artist, you're really aiming at what they want to say. Which is a whole different game. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess it depends who it is, you know, because a lot of artists really don't know what they want to say until they say it. Hmm. And I, that's, I'm speaking from experience from myself, you know, uh, not talking bad about any artist because that's, I'm the same exact way. So it's kind of a, an exploration process within the writing. Exactly. And, you know, in Jake's early days, I mean, uh, we wrote six, five or six songs and however many I had on that record, he cut off every one of them, you know, on that record. And then, then we had the, his first hit off his next record, and uh, I haven't written with him since then. Wow. People change. You know, he really didn't know, I think, at that point uh, who he was as an artist, and it took him a record or two, and he ventured out and done some stuff, and then really discovered, you know, about that third record, who he was, and that those guys he was writing with at that time, and, and people who he was cutting their songs, uh, they... They nailed it, you know what I mean? They went sure. down barefoot blue jean night and stuff like that. It's like, okay, there's that's Jake Owen. You know, this other stuff, that was just trial and error on his part, and his label's part. Which we had some great success. You know, we had two top five hits and a, and a top 15. And, uh, you know, people people loved him, but I think he's really found his true voice, and I was glad to be a vehicle to help him uh, get to that point. Jake Owens' Don't Think I Can Love You reached number two on the Billboard Country Chart in 2008. Is there any story or memory about that song that stands out for you? Man, I tell you, I, I come up with that melody. I've been out mowing and uh, standing in the shower. Of course, everybody sings in the shower. And I just could not. I was singing that, and I had that title. And I just started humming it over and over in my head, and, and pretty soon just had to get out and dry off. Right. And sing it and do a little cassette recorder or whatever I had at the time, or phone, whatever it was. And we was writing the next day and uh, wrote that song. And I mean, it just it just felt like that chorus felt like a hit chorus. And yeah. he loved it from the get go. And Jimmy, who, Jimmy Ritchie, who produced his records as well, who wrote it with us, wrote most of that stuff with us. Uh, he's a great, great guitar player and uh, really, really took it and produced that record made made that song really stand out and that was I think that was Jake's first really big hit Cause girl I came by you a big diamond I want to ask about the title track to Jamie Johnson's critically acclaimed album, That Lonesome Song, which you wrote with Jamie. What the hell did I do last night? 
That's the story of my life Like trying to remember words To a song nobody wrote And it's sad and it's long And can't nobody sing along That whole record was kind of Jamie's rebirth as a songwriter and a real high watermark in terms of recent Nashville music history. Um, talk about that song in particular and working with Jamie in general. Jamie is probably the uh, closest thing to, uh, I've never written with Willie Nelson, but I, I would think Jamie Johnson is probably the closest thing as far as a songwriter and artist to Willie Nelson that we have. Uh, he's, uh, he gives zero shit about what anybody says about anything. He does things the way he wants to do it, and uh, he helps all of his fellow songwriters and friends, artists out. I mean, he's just such a good dude. And the day we wrote that song, was the day after he lost his record deal at RCA. He oh, was on man. there, and he was in a pretty dark place at that time. You know, sure. uh, Jamie's an interesting dude anyway. I mean, he's uh, he's different than most people. Huh. So he uh, he rubbed people some people wrong in that right. area. And he was you know he was partying pretty hard. And was a different guy at that time when he was drinking, and uh, so it, it's really not the best time to write a song with a guy the day after he loses his record deal because he's pissed <laughs> off at the world. You know. Right, but uh, he came in and he wanted to write that. You know, that was his idea, and, and that song was about him. You know what I mean? He 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 writes shit. He does. I mean, he lives those songs, which is most artists don't do that. You know, they might act like they do, but that album. I mean, that came from a real spot in his heart. You know, I mean, in his life. So uh, we wrote that song, and I didn't think much about. It. I thought it was cool, and then, you know, a couple months later, he called. And he's like, Hey, I'm gonna. I'm going to do a new record, I'm going to cut that song. And then pretty soon, he said, hey, I cut that song, that's going to be the title track to the record. I was like, awesome, cool, you know. Didn't think nothing about it because he didn't have a record deal. And then uh, Universal picked it up and they put out In Color, and damn, that record was phenomenal. I mean, that was just a, that was a ground-changing thing here in Nashville. And, if, and I think if, if the music business had to let it go, expand beyond Jamie, that we, I think we would have been looking at a different, playing field today there was a lot of great artists like him around at that time uh, who really done honest sounding stuff and uh, they just didn't get the opportunity but i'm i'm sure thankful he did and uh he is uh you know he still tours on that stuff he hadn't done a record in seven eight nine years and he still sells a lot of tickets and people love come out and sing every word of those songs and, and lonesome song when i play it live uh, it's probably one of it gets more response than a lot of my hit songs have. There's probably more people that like that than than some songs that you know top fives. Another one of those guys who, like Jamie Johnson, shook things up in Nashville is Chris Stapleton. And you and Chris have written a lot of songs together, but one of the very earliest that I was able to find was Never Loving You, which Blake Shelton cut on his Start and Fires album in 2008. If I died Talk about how you and Chris first met and, and what drew you guys to working together. Our publishers introduced us. He was writing at Seagale, 
uh, publishing and uh, a girl worked over there at the time named Liz O'Sullivan who signed him over there uh, she had sent some uh, demo tapes over to uh, my publisher which was Windswept at the time Steve Markland and uh, Cliff Aldrich and Cliff I remember Cliff called me in his office he was like hey there's this new dude over at Seagale uh, that Liz wants you to write me and Liz thinks you should write with. And I said, oh, cool. And he, I said, you got any songs? And he, as soon as he hit play and that voice flew out of that speaker, I was like, who in the hell is this? <laughs> and he was like, his name's Chris Stapleton. I was like, uh, give me every day that he has open. I'll write with that guy anytime. So I met him and he was so, you know, uh, when you see him, at that time he didn't have a beard, didn't have long hair. He wore like these horn rim not really horn rimmed, like Buddy Holly glasses. They, they looked like it to me at the time, thinking back. But <laughs> yeah. uh, look, looked absolutely nothing like he did today. And, man, it was just like, introduced itself. We hit it off, uh, started writing songs. And that was a pretty regular thing for years. You know, we'd write, you know, 10 songs a year or something and hang out and drink whiskey and act a fool. Uh, we got some cuts, you know, like the, the Blake Shelton thing and, Seems like we had like we had a Leanne Womack cut and Josh Turner. I mean, we we done pretty well and, and wrote some great songs. And uh, and then you know when the 2015 CMA Awards came along, uh, everybody everybody got to see what we had been seeing for ten years. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah, he is the obviously the torch carrier. You know, I, I'm not sure that uh, that will be topped. I mean that that moment of uh, him blowing up on TV. I mean it was just you know. That's all it. That's what it takes for artists like that. Sometimes just to be able to have that opportunity uh, for the masses to see them. Right. Somebody took a chance. You know, Justin Timberlake said, "I'll sing on the CMA Awards," hmm. but I'm saying if, if you'll let me sing with him, because he was a fan. Wow. Yeah, and it was just like, holy shit, this guy is just <laughs> phenomenal. Right. Well, earlier when we were talking about having your heroes cut your songs, you mentioned George Strait. And you and Jimmy Ritchie teamed up with Jim Lauderdale, one of our past Songcraft guests, to write Twang, which became a hit for George in 2009. That's probably the most excited that I've ever been in uh, the day that I found out George cut that song. That was, you know, that's the pinnacle in country music to me is the beat George Strait. You know, at that, especially at that time. I mean, he was he was rocking. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, me and Jimmy Ritchie had written that chorus. And Jimmy, we was when we got done with that chorus. Jimmy was like, "Hey, man, I'm writing with Jim Lauderdale tomorrow, and I bet we should finish this song with him." Because George Strait loves Jim Lauderdale, and this sounds like it could be a George Strait song. It's like, I was like, hey, I love Jim Lauderdale. I'm a huge fan. So, And we hit, we wrote that song that day. We wrote another song. And we, I bet we wrote, uh, I mean, Jim's cut a couple of my songs on his records, too. So we, we wrote a ton of songs. But, but Twang, uh, I mean, it was just a special. We demoed it up, and it sounded, I mean, George cut it just like our demo, really. And uh, I sang a version of it, and, of course, Jim sang a version of it in his version. It's almost like George just went in and sang it exactly like Jim. It's exactly what he should have done because that's, you know, they're, they're a lot alike as far as phrasing and things. But I love Jim Lauderdale, and we was writing together, me and him and Jimmy, the day that uh, Jimmy got a call. He was friends with all those studio musicians who played on the records because Jimmy's a record producer as well. And uh, 
he, he, we knew George Strait was cutting because he'd always go to Key West to cut in uh, Jimmy Buffett's studio down there. And uh, Eddie Bayers was the drummer. And they was keeping it really, really hush-hush on what George was cutting, the record label, nobody was saying nothing. And uh, Eddie Bayers, the number came up on Jimmy's phone. And he said, uh-oh, Eddie's calling. And Jim was like, well, answer it. And as soon as he answered it, I heard him say, hey, man, did you got twang? And as soon as he said that, we would just high-five and ran in the <laughs> other room, told the publishers. So cool. Uh, we proceeded. I think we probably went out and got drunk that day, I'm sure. We <laughs> just scrapped whatever we was doing and went to the bar. Right. I found out it was a single. I mean, it was just like, you know. And it was the title track to the to the album as well. I just seen it came out 10 years ago today, actually. Oh, I well, seen on the, on the thing on Twitter a while ago. So, yeah, that, I mean, that was uh, that was a uh, fantastic. That was probably the hottest that I was as a songwriter at that in that as just far as being a songwriter, right in that area, I was getting a ton of cuts, and uh, yeah, things was rolling really good, and that was the icing on the cake for sure. When we look back at music history, we typically focus on the singles, but then I look at a guy like Trace Adkins, who I don't think has issued one of your songs as a single, but has sure done a lot of them as album cuts. Uh, how does it end up that a guy like that keeps coming back to your songs over and over again? You know, and I didn't even know Trace at first when he started cutting my songs. Uh, I think Fighting Words, and Fighting Words was the first song of mine that uh, me and Tim James wrote that he cut. And uh, I just, somebody introduced us at a party or something, that, and he was like, keep sending me songs, man, you sing in my key. That's what he was going to say. <laughs> and, you know, rocking guitars. So uh, I always, I always kind of knew what the, when the, Trace was getting ready to cut a record, what songs to, to throw to him, you know, the phrasing-wise and what, you know, what his range was and things. And, yeah, he was really good to me. Now, he had cut in the last couple of records, but there for a while, he yeah, he cut a bunch of my songs, and uh, we've become pretty good friends. And uh, I call him Eeyore because he's, he's always, <laughs> it seems like he's moping all the time. He's just such a big dude. And, That's great. And, uh, he just mopes around, be like, send me some damn songs. <laughs> Never get, he don't seem to ever get excited about anything. You, just, you could send him, you know, song of the year, and he'd be like, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, he's been great to me. I, don't, I, don't, I ain't sure how many songs of mine he's cut, but it's, it's quite a few. Another one of your really cool album cuts came with your song Hard Road to Ho on the band Whiskey Myers album Early Morning Shakes. I'm too mean to die. I'm too numb to ride. Myers is a group that doesn't get a lot of attention on the radio, but bands like them and, and Blackberry Smoke are really keeping the the Southern rock tradition alive. And I hear a lot of Southern rock influence in your stuff. Um, what role has that music played in shaping you, a guy who's, you know, generally classified as country? Well, you know, when you think back, like, like I said, Hank Williams Jr. was a giant influence on me. You listen to Hank Jr.'s records in the 70s and 80s when he was making records that I loved, the family tradition, Whiskey Benton, Hellbound. He drew from all the influences. He was hanging out with Skinner and Allman Brothers, the great Southern rock bands, you know, of, of that era. And so he was heavily influenced by them. So And then I was heavily influenced by them as well, but I was super influenced by Hank Jr. So he always had that country lyric you know, and uh, but he had some driving guitars in it, some good B3 stuff. Uh, it was just a, the perfect marriage. And I think country music and southern rock, I mean, 
they're so close together. Right. I mean, yeah. the Southern Rock guys, uh, Ronnie Van Zandt's lyrics, uh, it, just read them. You know, take, take the Southern Rock music away and read those lyrics and put a steel guitar on it, and it's still going to touch you the same way. I mean, them were country songs, but they was just rock and rollers playing them. Huh. Uh, that's probably my favorite uh, favorite kind. You know, I'm, I, I like rock and roll as well. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so I love ACDC and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, Leonard Skinner, the Almond Brothers, I mean, they were just those kind of musicians. Uh, those kind of bands just, they don't really exist outside of the Blackberry Smokes and the Whiskey Myers. There was a bunch of them in the 70s. Marshall Tucker Band, a lot of really great bands. There's not that many anymore. I'm hoping more of them come about, you know, to listen to Blackberry and listen to Whiskey Myers. And I hope, I hope it spawns a few more Southern rock feeling bands. That would be awesome because that's, that's killer music. Yeah. It weaves itself in, the, in a lot of my music as well. You're right. You know, we touched on Chris Stapleton earlier, but I want to ask you about the song Either Way, which was the first single off his From A Room album in 2017. Prior to Chris's recording of that song, that was recorded by Leanne Womack on her Call Me Crazy album back in 2008. Talk about how that song came together and how it kind of traveled through multiple lives. Yeah, uh, we was uh, me and Tim James was writing with Chris, and Chris, as usual, was running late that morning. He was a uh, uh, he was he was not always the most punctual guy. We was riding at ten, he'd show up at ten thirty. His hair wet, you know, come running in the room like, "Sorry guys, you know, I was out late, whatever." But um, so me and Tim was there on time and, and picking around, and I was playing that chord progression, that that little lick at the front, and uh, and Tim had the, <clears throat> had the title. And actually, the Steve was talking about either some friends of his or cousins or somebody, and he was talking about their marriage falling apart. And uh, he had that title, you know, he was like, uh, we'll, like, we'll stay together for the kids, but I ain't going to love you. You know, basically it was what he was telling me about these people. And uh, so we had it cooking already by the time Chris got there. And uh, he was like, man, what is that? I was like, something we're going to rap with you, you know. And we stormed through that song, and he immediately, he was really good friends with me at the time. I, did, I didn't even know her at that time. And uh, a good giant fan of hers, obviously. She's probably the my favorite female country singer of, in the past 30 years. Uh, he sent it to her. We didn't even demo it. I mean, he just done a, him singing, playing a guitar on a cassette tape or on a phone, whatever it was. And I sent it to her, and they cut a masterpiece. I mean, that record is phenomenal. I'm past the point of give a damn And all my tears are cried We Yeah, she killed that song. I mean, and and just it's so heartfelt the way she sings it. And, uh, that's that that and that's my favorite song that I've ever had recorded. Huh. Her version and Chris's as well. But uh, yeah. 
But yeah, I heard there's just something about hearing a woman sing sing that lyric that just touches somebody. It's interesting you say that because when I look at your song catalog, it seems that very few of your songs have actually been recorded by female artists. No, I don't. I write a lot about fighting and drinking and, and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I haven't. I haven't had a, a ton of uh, female cuts. I've written a lot of great songs with a lot of females who are just songwriters. You know, it seems like the girls are wanting. They're wanting to get more guy cuts. And now us guys, you know, are wanting to get more girl cuts. Because really, uh, nowadays, I think females are doing. The coolest music. Huh. Yeah. yeah, they got they got the most nerve, and they're stepping out and doing you know Miranda and Casey Musgraves, Marble Price, uh, Lucy Silvers, people like that are really stepping out and just doing these killer records. You know the high women that's out there right now, Brandy Carlisle, and, and all them girls. Natalie Hemby. I've, I've written some songs with Natalie. She's just uh, it's a shame it took this long for her to really people to see her as an artist because she's such a great writer anyway yeah but uh, sure. i would love to get more girl cuts because the girls are doing way cooler music these days i think than as a mass than the men are in 2017 uh chris stapleton released the album from a room volume two which featured a couple of your songs hard living and trying to untangle my mind um were all the songs on volume one and volume two recorded at the same time or were those actually two completely separate projects that were cut as different albums you know i think they was probably all done i, I never have again asking that but i presume because we had a listening party for uh from a room uh, volume one when it came out and then uh, i was talking to jimmy stewart who's uh, another friend of chris's that writes songs with him and, and he said uh somebody said i don't have uh I got one song on this on this record, he said, but I got one on the other one, too. And I was like, on what other one? He was like, the volume two of this. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I, I thought it was strange that Chris only cut nine songs, you know, after after Traveler. I was like, you know, he's got a thousand songs and he's only cut nine. I thought that was a little weird. But hell, who am I to say? I wasn't going to say anything. I was just glad to have one on there. <laughs> he's, he's very secretive about what he cuts. He don't tell us. It ain't like he calls and says, hey, man, I cut your song today. He actually texts me. Uh, before volume two came out, I kind of had a feeling he was cutting those. Uh, I, I knew I had some more on there. I didn't know what they were. He'd been playing them live, so I presumed it, it might be those. But uh, he texted me like right before the rec the week before that record was going to drop. It was like, hey, did we call this trying to untangle my mind or untangle my mind? You know, he couldn't remember. I, I was like, hell, I don't know. However you want to put it on your record, I don't care what you say on there as long as it's on there. into his A&R guy, Brian Wright, who signed him, uh, Oak Universal, big champion of his, and uh, we was talking about it, and he was like, man, you know, all the songs you wrote with Chris all those years, you know, 60 songs or whatever, he's like, always loved those songs, but just hell, we didn't have anybody to do them, you know, huh. yeah. we didn't, we couldn't get anybody to cut these songs, he said, and then when he happened, it's like, oh, hey, <laughs> he'll cut these songs, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure glad he, uh, He's not scared to go back and look at... A lot of artists are scared to go back and cut old songs. Interesting. I want to write something new. Uh, 
Chris has got such a vast catalog of songs that uh, he could not write another song and just continue making records until he's tired of making records and go out. And now that his career has just like exploded, do you and Chris find the time to write together much anymore? I wrote with him the other day, wrote a couple good songs. It was it's the first time we'd written together in uh, several years. I mean, he kind of he after Traveler, he pretty well took off writing for at least a couple couple three years. Didn't do any songwriting. Well, that's wild. Um, well, I want to talk about your own artist material. You released your debut album, Low Down and Lonesome, in 2017 with you know Southern rock and, and blues and country influences. Um, and I understand that that record was really created as a concept album. It was, yeah. Uh, when I started uh, talking about it, of course, it was you know the day after Stapleton blew up on the awards. It was like, man, I'm so tired of chasing what people are doing as a songwriter trying to write you know for people that's getting you know as a professional songwriter your job's to get on the radio and the songs that you had to write to get on the radio i just i couldn't do it i just couldn't make myself you know i'm not a young man anymore and just like i got some pride and a little bit stubborn and I'm like man I, I just can't write you know i want to write good songs i don't want to write shitty songs you know the same one song that everybody's recording yeah, yeah. and i get why you know the guys that write them do it because hell you know they're getting rich on it i don't you know if I could write those type of songs, I probably would have stuck in there and done it. But I just couldn't. I couldn't make myself do it. So I had uh, went to a buddy of mine, Keith Gaddis, who's a great producer here in town, great guitar player, played with Dwight Yoakam, and uh, just a really good dude. We'd written some songs together, and I said, I think I want to make a record. And he was like, Well, you want to make a record about? It? I'm like, You know, I don't know. We started digging through some songs, and then I ran across Low Down and Lonesome, who, which me and him and uh, me and Keith Gaddis. Uh, Randy Hauser had written that years earlier, and Randy had actually cut it on one of his records. And uh, I said, How about this? You know, This could be an idea for a for a record, you know. All the songs I'm either low down or I'm lonesome, and in all these songs, he was like, "Now that's a good idea." So we, you know, plucked through some old songs and picked, you know, I think maybe four or five things that uh, I already had written, and then uh, like like I was talking about earlier, then Keith was like, "Okay, here's what we need," you know. And then me and him started writing songs, and pretty well rounded the rest of the record out. And that was my first experience, you know, at 46 years old. Uh, of making a record it was so much it was just a blast well you've got a new album that's coming out on October 11th called Solid Gold Sounds that you worked on with Dan Auerbach with the Black Keys talk a bit about that record it was life changing for me I was you know I was at a place for as far as songwriting it was just like man it just it wasn't fun it, well, I wasn't having that much fun writing songs hmm. you know I wasn't, wasn't, didn't feel like I was writing anything good right and then uh the guy that I'm working with, Clay Bradley, went over to uh, visit Dave Ferguson, who works a lot with uh, Dan. Dave produces Sturgill and uh, Tyler Childers and, and stuff like that. You know, really cool, rootsy, Margot Price, really cool stuff. And played him some stuff, and he was like, man, let me let me go play this for Dan. Me and Auerbach's doing some stuff together. And Dan liked it, and I went over and met him. Of course, I was a fan anyway, you know. I, I don't know a lot about the Black Keys. My kids were, you know, my kids were like, 
fanatics of Black Keys. Sure. They was all excited about it. They're, they're grown now, but they were just like, man, that's Dan Arbach's just cool as cool as hell. It don't get any cooler than that guy. <laughs> right. So, and he had different ways of working. You know, Dan, his band uh, over at Easy Eye, uh, he, he got a bunch of guys who had, you know, pretty well retired. Uh, you know, just kind of got pushed to the wayside. These great musicians from the 60s and 70s. Uh, the youngest one in the band, I think, saw the Beatles. So that shows you what kind of age these guys are. The drummer is 82 years old. Wow. And these guys are, you know, they play on everything from Pretty Woman to uh, In the Ghetto and Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. All these classic songs. I mean, they're just they're phenomenal musicians. And he brought them back to life, put them to work, gave them, you know, got them off the farm and and these guys are killing it i mean we wrote these songs in four days and cut with this band and it was just a life changing it was just like they breathed life back into me as far as a songwriter and, the, and an artist and uh, we done this record and dan you know I, I didn't know what we was going to do with it and he didn't either you know he was just like i like it i like what you do uh let's Let's try to write some songs. We'll make a record and see if we can find somebody to put it out. And before it was over with, he was like, "Hell with everybody else, you know. We're gonna, we're gonna put this out on my label." I was like, "Fantastic!" So you know, it's just a cool to be involved with people like that. You know, that's really uh, cutting edge, really uh, standing on the outside looking in. You know, I mean, they don't, they're not, they don't look for the approval of, of Nashville or any anybody else for all that matters. You know, he just wanted to do something cool the sounds i can't i shouldn't say sounds retro but it does because all of his gear in his studio everything he owns is is vintage it's not like we're trying to duplicate make a sound up it's like this is actually what this shit sounded like when it was made in the 50s you know or whatever whenever it was made so it was just it was a phenomenal process yeah, it was wow. the most fun That's i've awesome. ever had in the studio and uh Hell, I can't wait to do it. I hope this record does good enough we can make another one because it was, it was loads of fun. You came to Nashville to become an artist, and after nearly two decades as a behind-the-scenes songwriter, that's what you are now. Um, and even with your growing career as a singer and performer, you had three songs on the last Brothers Osborne album, Port St. Joe. Um, where do you see yourself at this stage? Is your focus on being... Uh, an artist now, or, or are you still focused on writing songs for other acts, or, or are you kind of trying to, you know, thread that needle and, and give attention to, to both? Uh, exactly what you said, thread the needle. I mean, like I said, there's there's a couple artists that I still write with. I, write, I still write with Brothers. I'm writing with them this week. Uh, I still write with Stapleton. Uh, you know, I'm touring with both of those guys this year. So I that's I see. I'm doing more artist things, uh, yet I still write with those guys. So I can. It's a kind of a happy medium, really. Uh, you know, I've done well enough that I don't have to. I don't have to do anything. You know, I don't mean I don't have to work. I don't have to. You know, I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to write with any anybody that I don't want to write with anymore. I'm not going to do the kind of songs that I don't want to put my stamp my name on anymore. Uh, so, you know, I'll stick with guys like Brothers Osborne. You know, we, we, we work well together. Uh, they're fun dudes. I love those guys. You know, they're like brothers to me. And uh, and Chris, obviously, I mean, we're just old, old friends. And I, I respect those guys. You know, I, I dig what they do. Even if I don't get anything on their records, I'll buy them. And I'm sure I will dig them just as much, if if not more, you know, the, if, if I don't have songs on it. That's cool. I plan on, you know, making my own records, doing my own thing, and still writing with cool people like them that, that I respect and, uh, and staying afloat. 
Well, Kendall, we sure appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for being part of the show. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it, man, anytime. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.